Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight, and my guest today is Peter Himmelman. Peter is an award-winning Emmy and Grammy-nominated musician and the founder of Big Muse, a company that teaches creative thinking, leadership skills, and deeper levels of communication in all facets of life, from personal to professional. As Big Muse has grown in popularity over the last four years, Peter has come to share his program with thousands of individuals, including academic institutions like the Wharton School and UCLA, and international brands such as McDonald's, Adobe, and Gap. He has brought all his ideas together in his new book, Let Me Out, Unlock Your Creative Mind and Bring Your Ideas to Life. And I'm delighted to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Peter. You know, what immediately caught my attention in the opening of your book was finding that you needed to reinvent yourself too. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners will resonate with that as well. What happened? Well, I mean, I don't want to be abstruse here when I answer these questions, but, you know, so I think this reinvention thing is is pretty native to all our lives. And sometimes the reinventions are fueled by positive things. You're going to get married or you have a baby. And sometimes they're fueled by challenging things. Um, and perhaps you're referring to the latter in this case, where I went from, you know, sort of full-time musician, uh, which I do still tons of music, and, and to this kind of, I don't know what, exactly what you call it. I hesitate to use the word consulting, but sort of a, a teaching sort of position where I've taken the ideas from my creative life and sort of brought them to different places, business schools, you know, wounded soldiers, hospitals, you know, how, what goes on in the mind of a quote creative type. And, and the reason I had to make that transformation was uh, oftentimes we find ourselves challenged or going through periods of adversity. The entire music business for your listeners who aren't quite aware has been basically upended, almost completely disrupted. Whereas, you know, say 15 or 20 years ago, you would put out a record and expect somebody to actually buy it. Now that's almost a ludicrous thought. And I explain it, it's in my book this way. A cousin of mine uh, from Chicago, he said to me, he's got an accent. He goes, so Peter, tell me what uh, happened to the music business. And he's a diamond dealer. So I said, well, Yitzhak, imagine that you're cupping your hands under your computer and all the diamonds you're trying so hard to sell will just fall into your hands for free, infinitely reproducible. He goes, that's a, that's a problem. I'm like, of course. <laughs> so I had, you know, it's, I had kids going into three kids almost at one time and a fourth just behind going into private colleges at once so this Ouch. need to recreate rebrand you know transformate whatever you want to call it was urgent and and i think i talk a lot about urgency in the book that there's something has to be vastly compelling to make you uh go through and endure whatever a, a true change puts a person through so Really, this was about providing for the family. That's kind of like the sort of the less artistic look at it. But all these things, I think, are, you know, part of it is 
the fuel, you could almost call it a, a left brain activity, the need to do this in a certain time, and we need to make a certain amount of money to get these kids into school. And then I started thinking, well, what are the other skill sets that I possess that could possibly uh, be able to be monetized? And that led to this, you know, sort of transformation, as you call it. Well, you know, technology is impacting virtually every profession on the planet. I mean, think of authors. It used to be that they would find a publisher and the publisher would give them an advance and they would get royalties and the publisher would help them promote their book. And that is now more the exception than the rule. Um, people in uh, industry find their jobs outsourced or moved into uh, a more highly technological framework. So this is a challenge that faces virtually everyone. I mean, young people as well coming out of universities. What do they do with their lives? So um, tell us about the, the premise behind Big Muse. How do you take people forward? Well, I, I, I will tell you that, second, what you're mentioning to me, especially when you mentioned about young people coming out of college and people in general, the way things are changing. Uh, somebody sent me a couple years ago this comic strip. It was a one-panel comic, which pretty much exemplifies this challenge, which if, if everyone is facing, doctors, lawyers who are having their things outsourced to places like India, everything is changing. So. There's a guy digging a ditch in this comic book, and he finishes digging the ditch. He holds out his hand to be paid, and the foreman says, pay you? I'm going to tweet about you. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, there's not any, at the end of the day, people are, you know, where do you get likes and Twitter, you know, tweets? How does somebody actually make a life for themselves in this world? So that's the dilemma. To break down a very simple, I guess, look at where my book is kind of, you know, where it points people, and I and it's very simplistic, and obviously the book has some deeper and more complex aspects, but I look at it in three ways. There's three parts, present, specific, and true, or if you would like to reverse it a little bit, specific, present, and true. So. Let's say, as I did, I had a dream, a long-time dream, this will be the example we'll use, to fly an airplane. It's just something I always wanted to do as a kid, but I was somewhat, you know, I was, first of all, terrified. I didn't have the math skills. Turns out you don't need that many math skills. As I got to be a father and a husband, I was terrified I would crash and, you know, my family would be, like, bereft and missing their husband and father. But I really wanted to do this. So, okay, so what is specific? How do I break <clears throat> that big, big dream into tiny, workable, doable parts? So just as an example, a specific step for me in learning to fly a plane would be to, you could break it down infinitely, I suppose, would be to sit down at my desk. That would be one. Anyone can do that. It takes no time. It takes no special skills. And then, if you want to break it down further, Google flight times at Santa Monica Airport, where near where I live. You can go for a test 
you know, run. That simple step for me is, is really beyond being practical. It's also somewhat mystical. It's an action which becomes instantaneously easy dream of mine and almost a little filament connecting it to the real world. And I always almost think of it as almost a bit of a Ray Bradbury science fiction. Here you are taking this, as I said, this ephemeral dream material, and now by this simple action, you're, you're at the first step of actually bringing it into the world. And even though it's just a tiny step, it seems like insignificant, doing that was a huge step into me actually flying a plane. So the second step in this specific present and true is to make sure that you take this step in the present. It's very simple. Don't put it off for, you know, two years from now. Don't put it off. You're tired. Do it tomorrow at a very specific time, 1035 in the morning. Instead of, you know, taking a coffee break, do this one action. The third thing on this sort of triad of, of uh, procedures that I like people to go through when they're thinking about reinvention or following their dreams or pursuing their ideas, however you like to look at it, is the most depthful and most fruitful and complicated and interesting part of the book, I think. Specific, present, and true. The truth of this idea, is it resonating for me or is it just something that I feel compelled to do because, let's say, my father wanted to be an airline pilot, which he didn't, and let's say he wants to live vicariously through me, so I feel this pressure for my dad to do it. That wouldn't be a, a, a goal that was true for me. Finding out what it truly is that you want to do with, with the time you have on Earth is a very kind of beautiful process of discovery. And that's sort of the deeper aspect of my book, I think. What I am curious about is how you got from being a professional musician to thinking deeply about these things and actually creating this process that you expose so beautifully in your book. Well, it's pretty simple the way that it happened or pretty almost mundane as most things are. About almost 20 years ago now, some people who ran the Telluride Concert Festival in, in Telluride, Colorado, some people might know the film festival and the concert festival, they asked me one year if I could teach songwriting to people. And I said, oh. you know, why not? And they put you up on a, on a cabin by a stream. I brought my whole family. There's about 300 people that come from all over the world in the woods to learn to sharpen their skills as songwriters. Some are professionals, some are absolute beginners, but everyone's really up for the challenge of learning how to write a song better. So I, I will continue as I hear the music coming. Imagine everyone <laughs> out in tents in the woods waiting for this new teacher to arrive. He okay. comes with knapsack and his guitar. We are speaking with Peter Himmelman, author of Let Me Out. Unlock your creative mind and bring your ideas to life. We'll be right back after the break. So, Peter, 
you left us waiting in the woods for this figure to appear bearing a guitar. Tell us what happened then. Right. So we've been talking about, you know, how did I make this change from a musician into sort of a teacher? And this happened about 20 years ago. So I'm coming back, you know, from my cabin to the woods to greet these students who want to become songwriters. And I didn't have a syllabus. I did not have any PowerPoint. It was just, you know, me and the ideas in my head. What I soon discovered in this group is, say, 30 people, one of the biggest challenges that they had, and it, it's germane to all songwriters and to most people on earth, they had all sorts of spare parts. They had titles for songs. They had little melodic ideas, but making a cogent whole was very difficult. They, many of them said, you know, how many songs do you write a year? I asked the professionals among them. Um, four, some said, two, six. I mean, a song is not a symphony or a novel. You should, you know, really be able to make six a week or ten a week, you know. They were really stymied by their fear. And as I started to think about it at the time, it was the fear that, once the song was out in the world, it could be subject to criticism. It could be mm -hmm. bad. And the fear was telling them, look, if this thing is in your head, it's safe. The idea is perfect. No one will ever be able to criticize it. And once you get it out there in the world, this voice says, people are going to jump on it. And if they jump on it, they're going to insult you and you'll feel ashamed. And if you feel ashamed, it just engenders all sorts of horrible feelings. So let's not ever finish anything. So people started nodding their head. I started talking about this. I started giving them sort of the caveat of saying, look, I want you to go into the woods now, back out into the woods for 20 minutes. And I want you to come back to the group, each and every one of you, with a finished song. But the caveat was, it doesn't have to be good. If you come <laughs> back with something that's god-awful, but it's finished, I want you to view that as an incredible bit of success. So giving them that sort of license to, to be horrible made that internal critic less important. They went out into the woods, and they came back after 20, 30 minutes, and I could tell by their expressions every man, every woman, every young person there, they were sort of giddy in a certain way. And when they played me the songs that they'd written and under the sort of the pressure of this time, to the individual, every one of their songs was so much richer than the ones that they had played me previous to that. And I started thinking there must be something here. And I went back to this song school thing you know, maybe a dozen times after that. It kind of refined this whole idea. Then when it came time to, to contend with the music business, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation we've been having, the disruption of the music business, I started thinking, well, why don't I do this for songwriters in Los Angeles and use it as a money-making venture? It was great. So many people signed up, but songwriters by nature don't have any money as a you know, remunerative experience. It just wasn't that mm -hmm. great of an idea. And then I started thinking, well, wouldn't this idea be somehow relatable to businesses? 
to organizations, people who might want to bridge this gap between, a, you know, the creative type and sort of the business type. And to me, those are misnomers that should never be truly considered because our jobs never determine our level of creativity in any case. Um, it's basically how open we are and how fearless we are in the moment that determines how creative we are. But that's a thing for an, another point in this conversation. And I started doing the first of these at a prototype seminars for people who are fans of my music and they owned a couple of them owned some big companies and they brought me in it was really successful and very confirming for me and you know really became a matter of me just sort of steering my ship in that direction putting it out there that I was available for this kind of thing refining my methodology, making it more connective and more useful and more relevant to what businesses might need, uh, what other artists might need. I do a lot of work with wounded uh, soldiers coming back, um, which is really gratifying. It's basically all the same idea. That's fascinating. How, how is it applicable to wounded soldiers? Well, if you think about sort of, you know, the the promise of my book, Let Me Out, Unlock Your Creative Mind and Bring Your Ideas to Life, it's there isn't really anybody that is exempt from this idea. Every one of us has ideas that we want to bring to life. It could be something like I want to restore peace in my family, which is a huge, you know, issue in the, the homes of, of soldiers that come back, you know, gravely wounded. It's so disruptive mm -hmm. to, to a family life. And, you know, the, the, the idea that someone could have could be as simple as I want to have a depthful conversation with my spouse and my kids. And that's kind of what I help elicit in my seminars with them. You know, um, it doesn't get any deeper than me asking them to take five minutes and write a letter to your children who are sitting there in the room with you and tell them how proud you are of them. And, you know, some of the guys don't have an arm, they can't write, so there's people on hand. But the beauty of those exchanges that are done under that same time compression, which I always use five minutes to get this letter written, write a letter to your wife and the wives are writing to their husbands and the kids. It's such a beautiful moment that's so emotional and so powerful. And uh, my understanding is if it weren't circumscribed, first of all, by somebody telling you to do it, and certainly everyone wants to do it. It's an idea that everyone would like to have manifest in the world. But by saying, I need it done in five minutes, that would be the, the present aspect of it. And the true aspect, which you discussed before, is certainly everyone longs for connection, to be valued, to be close. And especially in homes where these kinds of conversations may not have taken place since 2005, it becomes a very relevant and important thing. You have a lot of anecdotes uh, about people who come to you and say, I'm not creative. Um, maybe this is a good time for that particular, uh, to put that particular myth to, to bed. 
Yeah, I mean, I love it. And I'm pretty, I think, transparent and somewhat self-effacing in the book when I say, look, I've made, I don't know, 25 albums and, you know, I have a little goatee and I wear a hat, you know, so, and I'm a musician. So you'd think, Peter, you must be the creative guy. You must be so creative. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes I'm creative and sometimes I'm just repeating myself and I'm not in any kind of feckin' creative mode at all. And then I see somebody who's an insurance person or an actuary and they tell me, look, I'm not creative. I'm not a creative type. And I say, but look, I've seen how you interact with people. I've seen how you interact with your children. I've seen you being present and alive to the moment. That is what creativity is. It has nothing to do with dancing or, or writing poetry or any of the other performative arts that we think of as creative. In my mind, creativity is a natural state of being that we get to when we are temporarily or momentarily unafraid. And I don't believe that we as human beings can be completely transformed into beings who are not afraid. We, we have an amygdala, we have a limbic brain that's always on the lookout for threats and thank God for it, otherwise we'd be in big trouble if we ever needed it. You know, if I have a rabid puma were to run into the room, we would need that system. So we don't want to banish it. But when people, you know, a grocer or a postman, uh, a policewoman, when they're feeling sort of unfettered by this critical voice, which I should mention the name that I call it in the book, for this voice that we all have, no matter how rich or famous or beautiful, everyone has the voice, and I call it Marv. I've drawn a picture in the book of this little milk toasty guy, and it stands for, Marv stands for majorly afraid of revealing vulnerability. He's our voice of fear, and he impedes our creativity, and he, he doesn't want us to fail. He only wants to protect us. And really what we need to say is, Marv, you're working way too hard to protect me. Just give me an hour. I'm going to write this difficult letter to somebody, or I'm going to create a marketing plan or a business plan or write the first chapter to a book or even sit down to begin writing. Whatever it is, you almost have to say, Marv, thank you for protecting me, but I'm going to start. Give me an hour or two, and then you can come back. And what Marv does every time this internal critic has said, oh, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to see you succeed. I'm going to have a cup of coffee, maybe read the New York Times, and <laughs> do your thing. You know, as when, basically what I'm saying is, as long as we're fearfully mulling an idea, Marv is there just on us like a dead weight, impeding our forward motion. Once we take action, even as small of an action as sitting our butt down on a chair to begin writing. Marv is already drinking coffee, like winking at us with thumbs up. Good job, Miriam. Good job, Peter. I want you to succeed. But I'll, I'll only let you go when you start taking the first steps, the first actions. Mm -hmm. Well, often that really is, feels like a mountain and you have a lot of techniques in the book to help people get over that initial hurdle. What is the biggest um, 
uh, hurdle, uh, internal hurdle, that we have to overcome. I, I think you've, you've actually alluded to it a uh, number of times. It, it's well, the I fear mean, of criticism. To, to spell that out and to take it to its logical sort of conclusion, this Marv character, there's not actually a little cartoon in our head of a bald-headed, milk-toasty guy, but it does some, you know, some energy from the limbic amygdala brain. Is saying, look, so Peter, you're going to write this poem, but here's what could happen. You could fail. Probable. I mean, there's a probability. You know, it's not like it's impossible. He's, he's stating some fact. There's a pro probability mm. you could fail. Failure leads to shame. Shame leads to abandonment. And abandonment, since we were once infants and we remember this on some primordial level, led to our own death. So it's a mortal fear the that this ultimate sanction. Right. Totally. Well, we will we'll follow this up when we come back from break. Welcome back. We're speaking with Peter Himmelman about Let Me Out. So, Peter, Marv is protecting us from uh, ultimate disintegration, abandonment, all the bad things that we've had in our psyche since birth. So you're suggesting that we get started by taking that initial step on whatever project it is that we have in our hearts. However, what happens if we know we have this kind of vague feeling that there must be something more for us, but we don't really know what we want to accomplish in the world? How do you help people there? Well, you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation about, you know, the encroachment of technology and you know, sort of being a challenge, which I fully recognize. And, and on the other hand, there's something about the technologies that are really potentially generative of great creative acts. Now, this is, sounds very simple and very mundane in answer to your question, but one of the things that I do, and I've, you know, I have, think, I think I have like 20 exercises, which I, I refrain from calling exercises in my book because I hate books with the word exercise and it sounds like it's <laughs> going to be boring. I, I call mine brain bottle openers, like it opens your brain. So one of the things is take, I think it's like two minutes on your timer. And I use my phone timer on my iPhone. Every smartphone has one. I use it so often. If there's something that I, I feel I want to write a song or there's a sort of a challenging letter I have to write to somebody and I'm a little intimidated, maybe they won't like me, you know, whatever, I set the timer. And 99 times out of, maybe it's even 100%, by the time the timer that I set for five minutes or two minutes, by the time it goes off, I'm already aloft in sailing on what was previously a very difficult thing. In other words, I can stand the ignominy of failure for two or three minutes. But if you say, look, I'm just going to take five hours and try to do this, never. It's a tiny amount of time. So one of the things that I suggest in one of my brain bottle openers is take two minutes, which is, it's actually a lot of time, if you think about it, for this particular thing. It's a lot of times for a lot of things. Take two minutes and list things 
that you love to be doing right now. But, the, the, again, there's, a, there's caveats associated with this. Don't think practically. Don't start judging as you write in this two-minute exercise. In other words, just write, don't think. And what are the things you'd like to be doing? They could be absolutely absurd. They could be unrealistic things. I would love to grow wings and fly to Mars. I mean, that would be perfect. You just start writing. I would like to learn how to make strawberry ice cream. I, you know, I would love to study neuroscience. Well, the person may be 68 years old, and they're saying, well, of course, that's not going to happen. I mean, I'm 68. It could happen. You could all of a sudden enroll in a course and start reading, filling your mind with ideas about neuroscience. You know, in other words, the judgment of, I couldn't be a neuroscientist, is something that you don't want to intercede in this process. You don't want to fill you, this two minutes with assessments and, and, and judgment, which is, you know, the way that we live, and I'm, Miriam, I'm sure this is part of your work as well, we're so full of these assessments, these judgments, that everything has to create some sort of logical connection one with the other. And, and in many ways, if you're flying a plane or a physicist or an engineer, they have to be right, you know, that, that makes sense. But there's another part that needs to be better exercised, that, that's our ability to simply dream. As we get mm -hmm. older, that ability becomes less and less strong. It's it's definitely with us when we're squashed children, down by life. Although yeah. I, yeah, and and I think that that period of being a child, being able to dream in an unfettered way is shorter and shorter. You know, the more say you plop down a kid in front of a television screen, and you know they've seen all these advertisements and all sorts of other horrific things, that can really foreshorten the child's sort of dream life. But taking even two minutes for this exercise, what would I love to do right now? And I've, I did it with myself. I came up with all sorts of surprising things. I'd like to be dancing at my daughter's wedding. When I wrote it, she didn't even have a boyfriend. I mean, I'd like to have a farm where I raise goats and African leopard tortoises. Oh, of You know, course. that's to totally unrealistic, I suppose. But... After two minutes looking at that list, and you could list tons of things with, with no sort of stopping yourself, it's really interesting to get to self-reflect and to understand where you're coming from and what your needs and desires are by looking back at that short time you know, list. I love that you call it kid think. You know, put yourself into the mindset of a child and just let the imagination free. Yeah. Now, yeah, you do I mean, make a very useful thinking. distinction. Sorry. Go on. No, please. Uh, I was just going to say you make a really useful distinction between creativity and mastery because we're all expecting perfection of ourselves and we, we don't understand the difference between the two. Yeah, I mean, when somebody sees an accomplished musician, like I somewhat made that point before, it's like, oh my, you're so creative, or a ballet dancer that's just really masterful. 
it's not that isn't necessarily what how they evince their creativity that's that's something that they've done for years that's mastery don't you shouldn't one shouldn't confuse or conflate mastery with creativity creativity would be the sort of the faculty or the energy that that hypothetical 68 year old i just mentioned would use when actually trying to evince his desire to to delve into neuroscience you're open to new things you're able not to be impeded by this critical voice which i call marv that puts you in a very creative state you're at the store you're shopping for green peppers in the grocery aisle you're you're looking around you're you're alive you know you're you're acting friendly to people um that would be a very creative place to be it doesn't mean you have to be playing violin in a symphony hall with a crowded audience and and i think the other point that you make is that creativity is a process it's not the end result it's it's kind of creating order and solutions out of chaos and problems i loved that phrase yeah i think i put that in italics at some point it's really our capacity to to make order out of the chaos around us and it's a bit by bit process it's like working with mosaics it's one at a time one juxtaposed against the other and over time you know you sort of see the development of something but it's really taking those first steps it's really Now, hard when we're thinking about reinventing ourselves to think about exclusively about outcomes and goals because that will be like a tidal wave it'll wash over us and destroy everything and it's hard to to not think about the end goal but you have to be engaged in a process all along the way it's that engagement it's that joy you have from simply doing the small pieces that later accumulate to something akin to success or mastery or some you know big scale thing but we can't be daunted by the amount of time it will take now what's the role of what you call the posse in all this well i'm glad you brought that up the posse is really just a fun word you know i say got my posse or my posse it's just a group of people or one person that can hold you accountable that can be supportive and when i look at people who have told me have told me you know i tried this but it didn't work and i wasn't able to get this off the ground when it seems not to have worked for somebody i ask them who did you enlist to help you who gave you feedback constructive feedback and i mean really constructive feedback not like you know sort of disguised criticism for power purposes you got to be very circumspect about who you choose but in every case where an idea was not able to be manifest to any degree there was no person no facilitative person conversely whenever there's been somebody who has built something and it could be just a, a conversation with somebody has built a a stable means of conversing with somebody that's as small as an idea could be or becomes a ceo of a huge company to me it's all the same there's always 
someone in their corner. No one has done anything by themselves. Even a solo recording artist like Bob Marley or Bruce Springsteen, nobody did it on their own. It was all done collaboratively. Everything was a collaboration. I get by with a little help from my friends, so to speak. So you know, so true. And and you know, conversely, I can't I can't do a thing without my friends. You don't need a, you don't need twenty of them. You just need one. And that person can't be a sycophant. Can't be saying everything you do is brilliant. And by the same token, they can't be somebody who is subtly trying to undermine you as well. They're, all there's all these types out there. You have to find somebody who's built something his or herself. Um, those are the people that understand the vicissitudes and the challenges that one undergoes when trying to bring right. an, an idea to life. Welcome back. I'm Miriam Knight speaking with Peter Himmelman about Let Me Out. Unlock your creative mind and bring your ideas to life. And I must say that on the cover of his book, there is a little person in the bottle saying, let me out. And Peter, you're absolutely <laughs> sure that we all have that creative muse inside. Are you? Yeah, I mean, that that is, to me, the truth. Um, every Everybody does. Everybody that's sentient and alive has it just like their heart is working and their, you know, sense of touch. It's just something that we have. Really, the key is finding techniques to momentarily separate yourself from this internal critic. This, this character I call Marv, majorly afraid of revealing vulnerability. Once you do that, and you're not going to do that for long periods of time, you can do that for hours at a time, you'll be able to accomplish something. You'll be able to take one piece of that idea and start putting it into the world. And cumulatively, they'll, they'll amount to something. You have some wonderful techniques in, in your book, and I know you don't like to call them exercises, but little play uh, games that you invite us to join in. There's one game that I've put aside, which is writing your own song. I'm, I'm going to get back to that when I have um, a few minutes to uh, uh, enjoy it. But um, what did you find amongst the techniques to be the most helpful to people? Did any stand out? You know, I think one of the things that's the most helpful, and again, this may sound like sort of not a contradiction to talk about creativity, but something sort of like random. Where does this fit in? The first sort of, I call it brain bottle opener that I use in the book is called the why you statement. And I think there's a short time duration to it as well. It's answering this question, why you? And the question is, is phrased oddly. Why you? And I explain it a little bit. Why are you on the planet? You know, or what are you doing with your life? Or what is your raison d'etre? 
what is the legacy you want to leave? It's, it's, it's an open-ended question basically saying, what is your life's purpose? Um, and in some ways, it's almost a theological or spiritual question. Some people, you know, reject that. They're very pragmatic. And so they, they come up with some purpose for their life that they've created, you know, sans God or anything else. It's all fine. But I, I say, I, take three minutes and no more to write that idea down. And, and when I do my seminars, I, you know, go all around the country, ask, you know, college students and, you know, type A personality CEOs that question, what are you doing with your life? And because it's such a short amount of time to answer it, I usually give people like 30 seconds. The answers can't be frilly or, you know, any filigree on them. They're pretty pure. And they're, they're range something like, I want to make people happy. I want to leave a legacy of goodness for my children. I want to teach people the things that I find valuable. They're such beautiful aspirational ideas. And having that in my mind and, and practicing it, making it a daily practice, not in any specific place, but at every place, with every child, with your parent, with your spouse, with any stranger that you see, bringing your idea to your, to your life. Mine in particular is bringing joy and hope to people. And it's not something I would have said 10 years ago. I wouldn't even have thought of that. Me, I was just on stage, you know, making music and doing my thing and wanting people to look at me. But now there's a greater intentionality. And I use it, most challenging is with the people around you, bringing joy and hope at all times. Now, what that does for your creativity is, if you look at that chain of events that I said Marv puts you through, Marv suggests that if you try something new, you could fail, true, true. If you fail, you'll feel ashamed, true, possibly, yes. If you are ashamed, you'll be abandoned. That's typically what happens to shameful people. No one wants to be with you. And from abandonment, we remember in our pre-verbal infancy, abandonment meant death, something horrible. Now, all that has to do with the sense of being separated from people. When you find this mission statement and you meet it out in every aspect of your life, you know, it's, just, it's an ideal, it's an aspiration, when it becomes a practice, you find that your relationships deepen. That gives you security and a sense of, a sense of strength to be able to put your ideas into the world. It's that sense of knowing that I'm not going to be rejected if I fail, that I have allies and people that love me and supportive people around me, even if, even if it's only one person. That gives you strength and resilience to contend with this negativity, which will allow you this fearlessness, which will allow your native creativity to surface. One of the points you make in your book is that you can get started on a creative pursuit and then you kind of run out of steam. Uh, the, the initial enthusiasm kind of wanes. How do you keep your enthusiasm going? 
Well, it's funny. The, the initial enthusiasm will wane. It's just, you know, it's like a marriage or anything. It's, it, it's not a question of if, it's a question of, you know, when. It will wane. For me, part of it is knowing I've made so many records and I've, you know, done so many performances. And so I understand the cycle. The cycle is at some point it will wane. And not only wane, it will be this, your idea will become this very challenging I hesitate to use the word horrible, but in some cases it feels horrible. Just this, just this horrible thing that it's, it's bringing you all sorts of trouble now. From, from my understanding, my perspective, I know the cycle. I think that there's something very rich and very deep in the process at that point. That challenge is making me dig even deeper, and I'm aware of it. But what really is helpful is back to that posse idea where you have somebody standing by your side and saying, Peter, I, 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 I see where you're at. I get it. Um, you know, I'm here for you. I, I believe in your idea. I think it's a good one. Take a break if you need it, but I'm, I'm going to expect to see something from you in a couple of weeks. Somebody that can keep you on target. It's the most valuable thing in the world, which is basically what a friend is. A friend mm -hmm. is the most valuable relationship you can have. And, you know, if it's with your spouse, so much the better. But I think that having this person in your corner is so crucial to getting through that, that phase. The other thing is when you're at that sort of wall, you've got to stop. You've got to start exercising. You've got to start, you know, you know, I suggest all these different things you can do. Read poetry to kids at a at a children's hospital. Something that I did with our band we're traveling in the early nineties. Every morning we wake up, whatever city we were in and we're really tired, I said to the band, We're gonna get up, you're gonna see how good this is. We're gonna go to the Chicago Children's Hospital at like eight thirty in the morning and sing for kids. That gets you so out of your own head, you know, acts like that, um, that you can come back to your project with a renewed sense of perspective. Prayer is something that I do every day. It's part of my whole practice. Hugely important, this idea of understanding that creativity comes from some force, however you define it or describe it, from outside yourself, seeing yourself more as a vessel, a channel, rather than the, the, the one with a capital O that generates these creative ideas is very helpful. Um, as I said, just exercise, you know, sweat, go out, go for a run, you know, <laughs> open up your brain, listen to music, hmm. take the focus off of your head and your own ideas for a minute. Right. Well, uh, we're we're running short of time. So, uh, Peter, what websites would you direct people to to find more? More about creativity in general. Uh, more about whatever you are about. I know you have. Oh, oh what I'm your... doing. Okay, I'm going to talk about my. The the book we've set up a nice website for the for the book. It's called uh, Let Me Out Book 
dot com. Uh huh. There is a website called bigmuse dot com, which is all about my company and how it helps other companies become more creative. Bigmuse dot com. And then there's PeterHimmelman.com with tons of my music and videos and all sorts of things. What I was surprised to discover on your website was your art. That's pretty impressive. You know, I had a couple tricks on my sleeve, you know. (laughs) You know, I used to sell it. I used to sell it. Now I give art away as gifts. Uh I get more joy out of that somehow that's there's a site for that too it's called himmelmanart.com if anyone's really interested in a print or something i could make it happen (laughs) well it's been and if we become friends it's likely you'll get a you'll get a gift woohoo okay i'm gonna suck up (laughs) thank you peter thank you so much for being with us today We've been speaking with Peter right, Hemelman. Miriam, thank you so books. much. <laughs> I hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed week. Goodbye. <laughs>